This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. As dependable as the old toss sweep, WCScreens.com is, just like your Irish, the gold standard of the industry. For screen printing and embroidery, look no further than our friends at WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Quick question. Would you believe me if I told you that the man described as both the father of Notre Dame football and the father of Mother's Day was the same guy? Well, I bet you may now. Today we're going to meet Frank E. Herring. Not only did he truly legitimize the football and other athletic programs at Notre Dame, but he can also lay claim to being one of the first people to make a national push to celebrate all the mothers of America. And uh, hey, to all the moms out there, I hate to make your holiday about Notre Dame football, so uh, sorry. But buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I am your host. And regardless of where you're listening in from, I am very glad that you're here for this 61st episode in show history. And hey, as I mentioned in the show lead, a special shout out to all the moms out there. As this episode is being released, oh, about a week and a half or so before Mother's Day, which is, of course, that very special second Sunday of every single May. This is, of course, an intentional move, as we are going to be discussing the holiday in depth today. And yes, of course, how it pertains to Notre Dame football very intimately. But before we jump into this episode with two whole feet, got a few things I got to check off the list here. So first, I got to tell you, you ought to go back and listen to the last episode, which was called the Fighting Fundraising Irish, which was about Notre Dame's fundraising efforts during the 1930 offseason. These are the very last teams that Coach Knut Rockney coached and directed before his untimely March 1931 death. Really, really neat stories with some pretty juicy subplots kind of baked in. So believe me, it is well worth your time. And as I kind of share in the episode itself a little bit more in depth, when we really stop and consider just how and when Notre Dame became a bit of a national brand, so to speak, so much of it came from things like this and the events of that episode. So I won't spoil any more, but you really ought to check it out. I want to thank the Consensus All-Americans, both past and present, who are those who donate to the show and keep the Subway alumni train on the track, so to speak. These kind folks, some of whom have been around since the very early days of the show, of course include our pals at WCScreens.com and Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Will Fuller, newly of Warren, Ohio. 
Thank you all so very much. And if you want to get your name called as a Consensus All-American, feel free to visit the virtual tip jars, if you will, at paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. And I got to share something that came through the email inbox. This is from Dr. Jeremy Scarlett from Wisconsin. And he says, Dear Alex, I'm a doctor in Wisconsin that spends about eight hours a week in the car commuting. I love your podcast. I'm a 1998 graduate of Notre Dame and a lover of both history and football. Your podcast is very informational and completely sucks me in on my way to work. Thank you for everything you do. Jeremy. Hey, I appreciate the email and appreciate you listening and uh, hopefully you enjoy this one as well. Thanks for the email. I really appreciate it. If you ever want to email the show, please do. It's onward to victory podcast at gmail.com and I will read all the emails on the next episode of the show. And speaking of the show, but quickly again, before I jump into this offering, I have two episodes planned for the next two weeks. One is going to be kind of a 10 year anniversary of the Manti Teo Magical 2012 season. And I guess the easiest way to say it is kind of all the subsequent weirdness that followed with his girlfriend and all that. And I'm also going to do an episode on your favorite basilica, which is, of course, I hope, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, which is a landmark on Notre Dame's campus. And I'll tell you this much. I had the opportunity for only the second time ever to go to Mass at the Basilica the weekend of the Blue and Gold game, which just passed here pretty recently. So I was there with my wife and children, uh, my brother Colton, and my mom's husband Carl, and it was just so special, Uh, even overwhelming at times, honestly. So I really just want to share an episode that really places that beautiful structure as the center of campus. And, you know, maybe it's not the geographical center of campus anymore as it used to be, but certainly the symbolic and the spiritual one. And I just got to tell you, we had a great time this past weekend at the Blue Gold Game, and I wrote about it at onwardtovictory.blog, so head over there. But I wrote about it less from a football standpoint, so to speak, but more of just like a experiential and family-friendly vantage point. So, hate to shameless plug, but the kind of cap, the just the really the feather in the cap really for that entire weekend was having the opportunity to go to mass at the Basilica. And I mean, it was just really, really special. And that experience really reminded me that the heartbeat of that place is truly faith. And I hate to sound mushy and, and all that, but it's quite an experience. And I'm someone who chooses to live very emotively. I'm sure that among all the folks who are listening to this episode, some of you may have been to Mass countless times at the Basilica, some of you who may like to but haven't, and maybe there's probably a lot of you who wouldn't go. But regardless, this dominant feature of campus needs an episode. And actually, I have a couple really interesting angles that I think I'm going to take to do it. So stay tuned. There's a lot coming down the pike here. So... How about our man, though? The man of the hour himself, Mr. Frank E. Herring. So perhaps some of you have heard of Herring, but my guess is many of you have not. He has come up a few times on the show in passing, but he is a critically important and even underrated figure in Notre Dame athletics history. But let's go ahead and start with football very appropriately. 
So allow me to explain kind of chronologically here, and I think this will actually best illustrate Herring's contributions to the program. So, of course, the football team began play in 1887 and, of course, had a couple scrimmages against Michigan that season and also into the spring of 1888. Until 1894, the team actually really didn't have a coach to speak of, which kind of made sense, though, because it had adopted much more of an intramural mindset on campus as opposed to an intercollegiate one, if you will. And most of the football that was played on campus was actually between teams kind of banded together between residence halls. So that's kind of an interesting chapter in Notre Dame football history as well. But this changed in 1894 when the school decided to hire James L. Morrison, a former Michigan footballer, at the rate of $40 a week to be the part-time coach of the football team. So this was actually the first time Notre Dame had ever hired a football coach, and albeit Morrison was there on a part-time two-week gig. But it was a successful venture. The team went 3-1-1 and that season against the likes of Albion, Rush Medical College, Hillsdale, and Wabash. Just as a quick aside, I played against Wabash a couple times in college. Uh, but with all due respect, this is not what you would call a murderer's row of opponents, but I guess you really do have to start somewhere. So the next year, in 1895, Notre Dame hired a man named H.G. Haddon, who was another former Wolverine, to coach the team. And Haddon actually ended up embracing the role of the player coach, as he would kind of periodically insert himself into the game. As you might pick up, the game was a little less formal then. But in 1895, under Haddon's watch, the team went 3-1 against, are you ready for this? Northwestern's Law School, the Illinois Cycling Club, and the Indianapolis Light Artillery. A semi-pro team based out of Indianapolis. But if you can't tell, what I'm really trying to do here is paint a picture that Notre Dame, though they were at the stage where they were actually going and hiring coaches, weren't probably doing much for themselves as far as scheduling. To be considered a legitimate intercollegiate team, well, you had to kind of play some worthy opponents. And again, no offense to those teams that I mentioned, but they weren't really doing much for the football profile of the school. But I will also mention that this might have been somewhat out of Notre Dame's control, because during those early days of Notre Dame football, and and honestly, for another couple decades after that, there were a lot of Western Conference schools, which we now call the Big Ten, that would not schedule Notre Dame. And some of you are probably nodding your heads right now because you know exactly where I'm going to go. But why? Why wouldn't they schedule Notre Dame? Well, that's because most of the members of the plucky, soon-to-be-known-as-Irish football team were just that. They were Irish lads. And we are still dealing with the deep-seated anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant sentiment in America at this time. And this is something that the school and the football team would butt up against countless times. But new on the scene is Frank E. Herring, who was hired to be Notre Dame's coach in 1896. Now, Herring had some differences as far as his two predecessors in the sense that he did not come from Michigan. Herring actually came from Chicago and had played quarterback 
under the legendary Amos Alonzo Stagg at the University of Chicago. So Herring, being a disciple of sorts of Stagg, gave the program almost instant credibility in a way that they really hadn't seen yet. So the Sunbury, Pennsylvania native was coming to Notre Dame after having spent the previous season as an assistant at Bucknell University over in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And I know we covered Chet Grant a couple episodes, but here we are in 1896, which is kind of in Chet Grant's wheelhouse, if you will. So I'm actually going to read an excerpt from Before Rockney at Notre Dame, his excellent work that we again talked about a couple episodes ago. But if you haven't read it, oh boy, you should really read it. If you are listening to this podcast, honestly, you need to have a copy of Before Rockney at Notre Dame. But here's what Chet says when, about Frank Herring when he comes in. Quote, the liberality of eligibility rules in the early years suggests that he also might have played at Bucknell. But if he did, it was under a pseudonym, or he failed to make the team he coached. He moved to South Bend with his mother in 1896 to coach and captain the football team the first year. He also taught English and studied law. Get a load of this. He was partly paid in cuts of beef from the Notre Dame farm run by the Brothers of Holy Cross. Chet Grant continues, I saw Herring play once in 1906 as a member of a professional local club at a time when he had already become well-known as an after-dinner speaker, a high official at the Fraternal Order of Eagles, and editor of Eagle Magazine. He had the jaw of a fighting man and the brooding look of a poet. He became widely known as the, quote, Father of Mother's Day, a memorial he promoted as a tribute to his own mother, end quote. Man, I, I love Chet Grant. I mean what I say about before Rockney at Notre Dame. You just got to get your hands on a copy if you can. And frankly, you should because they're also, I think they're out of print. They got to be. So if you ever see one, whether it's on eBay or at a secondhand store, grab it because there's a finite amount of copies out there. But anyways, if you look at a picture of Herring, you'll see that Chet's assessment is very astute. You know, he's got kind of a scrapper look to him, but he's got a very thoughtful veneer as well. So that, in a sense, was indeed Frank Herring. But let's bring it back to Notre Dame. So Father Morrissey, Andrew Morrissey, was president of Notre Dame at this time. And he was pretty unhappy over the lack of revenue that the athletic teams were bringing in. In in fact, some of the sports teams were absolutely hemorrhaging money. And Morrissey even considered shuttering athletics altogether. Uh, It was written that the football team couldn't even afford protective equipment, which of course feels like a bit of a misnomer because it's not like they wore much of it, but that kind of tells you the dire financial straits of the football program. Imagine if they would have shuttered at the turn of the 20th century. It's just mind-boggling how history would have changed. But... This worked well because Herring wanted to actually bulk up the team's schedule a little bit, and he reasoned that more students would come to games against higher-profile opponents, so he added his alma mater in Chicago to the 1896 schedule, as well as Purdue, an in-state rival. And while Notre Dame lost both of those games, they were at home and it did draw quite a crowd, so it did help balance the books more than just a little bit. 
But how did this dramatic shift in scheduling occur so quickly to pull Chicago and Purdue in the same year after playing virtually nobody the previous few seasons? Well, of course, again, Herring had very strong connections to the University of Chicago, and he clearly tapped into those. So perhaps getting them on the schedule wasn't difficult for him. But it is also of note that he was not a Catholic. So perhaps that may have helped him grease the tracks a little bit too. Because consult any history of early Notre Dame football, and the anti-Catholic sentiment is not just something we play up here in the 21st century. I mean, it was something that they butted up against again quite frequently. But Herring didn't stop there in 1896. In 1897, Chicago stayed on the schedule, and Herring was able to add Michigan Agriculture, now known as Michigan State. In 1898, Herring left his absolutely indelible mark on the program in its initial quest for legitimacy. He not only scheduled Michigan Agricultural again, but also Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. What a quick turnaround in scheduling. This is incredible. So really, when you consider a lot of the momentum the Irish program were able to carry into the 20th century, nearly all of it has to be attributed to Herring. His three-year record as football coach was 12 wins, 6 losses, and 1 tie. But again, not terrible considering the significance of the strength of schedule. I mean, in earnest, Herring had helped push the football team from, again, a more intramural outlook to a full-fledged intercollegiate sport who were pulling really high-profile opponents every single year. This was, again, hugely significant. But he wasn't just the football coach. In 1897, so after his second year of coaching football, he also coached the Notre Dame basketball team. So what's more, folks? This was actually just six years after Dr. James Naismith invented the game. So not only did Herring, in a sense, save football and certainly advance it, he also brought a varsity basketball team to campus as well. And he was the first full-fledged coach. So think about it. The long trail that ends at current coach Mike Bray through Digger Phelps. And even if we jump over to the women's side, you know, Muffet McGraw. But when considering the long and storied history of Notre Dame basketball as a whole, it all begins with our man Frank Herring. And he actually would later coach the 1912-1913 team to a 13-2 record. So that first year, the team went 1-2, and two, again, back in 1897-1898. And this was the first year of recorded Notre Dame basketball. And again, this is still while he was a student at Notre Dame. But it was that same year he was named the Director of Athletics, which feels kind of appropriate. But in addition, he also coached the baseball team and he commandeered them to a 17-7 record between 1896 and 1898. And though he didn't pioneer the Notre Dame baseball team because it had been in action for more than a couple decades, again, it's still a very significant. He's got his kind of fingers in every single major Notre Dame sport at this time. So he did graduate with an English degree in 1898, and he immediately took 
a teaching position in the English department, and he continued to earn his law degree, which he would eventually get in 1902. But, of course, our story doesn't end with Notre Dame athletics, because as Chet Grant so eloquently alluded to, Herring was also a very, very active member of the Fraternal Order of Eagles. Now, if you're like, Alex, what the hell is that? Uh, that is actually like, if you look at your local social organizations, that's the Eagles Club, essentially. So just in case you're otherwise unaware, there's still a lot of Eagles clubs around. But anyway, he has the floor at an annual meeting of some kind in Indianapolis on February 7th, 1904. So our man Frank Herring is known for giving stirring speeches. Perhaps you know a football coach or two who shares a similar reputation, but he uses the platform to advance something that is very close to his own heart. And that is to, quote, set aside one day in the year as a nationwide memorial to the memory of mothers and motherhood, end quote. So this comes from a 1941 edition of the Scholastic, which is, of course, Notre Dame's student magazine, by way of an issue of Notre Dame magazine. But, quote, Herring's inspiration for a national Mother's Day came from Notre Dame students riding home to their mothers. Herring said, practically every boy has as his sweetheart his mother and that the surest way to appeal to him for his best efforts in building his character and his grades, those things greatly to be desired, was to remind him of the deep happiness his mother would receive, end quote. So yeah, kind of funny there. He recalls the close tie that he found that many of his football players had with their mothers, but also in looking at the Chet Grant passage, it seems as though he would have had a very close relationship with his mother. But... Herring continues in the 1941 article stating, Throughout history, the great men of the world have given their credit for their achievements to their mothers. The Holy Church recognizes this, as does Notre Dame especially, and Our Lady who watches over our great institution. End quote. So, wouldn't you know it, the resolution passed for the Eagles in Indianapolis in 1904, and momentum would continue to build around the movement to make Mother's Day a national holiday, which it would become just that, a bona fide holiday just one decade later in 1914. So pretty neat. As we celebrate Mother's Day this year, just know that it is the 108th celebration of Mother's Day nationwide. Now, in my best effort of transparency and telling a complete story, I would be remiss not to point out that some forms of Mother's Day had been celebrated even before that. According to the Encyclopedia of Motherhood, quote, During the 19th century, women's peace groups in the United States tried to establish holidays and regular activities in favor of peace and against war. A common early activity was the meeting of groups of mothers whose sons had fought or died on opposite sides of the American Civil War, end quote. So a very noble pursuit that was. 
but when we consider the snowball effect that the day had to have taken on to become a national holiday, we have to consider people like Frank Herring to get the formal recognition of the holiday passed, which is again now celebrated on the second Sunday in May every single year. So what happened to Frank? Well, he stayed very involved with Notre Dame athletics and the Notre Dame campus at large for the rest of his life. And he was an incredibly productive citizen of South Bend, Indiana as well. So considering the former, he was a huge supporter of head coach Knut Rockney. And in fact, Coach Knut Rockney, something that he doesn't maybe get necessarily all the credit for that he deserves, among the many things he actually does get credit for that he deserves, is that he was an early proponent of spring practice. You know, getting all the football guys out and, and working them through drills together in the spring. It's something that we very much take for granted now. But Rockney was, again, an early proponent of this. And in 1929, Herring actually helped the program bankroll spring practices. He actually donated $280 to underwrite spring practice for Rockney. And again, this was back when there weren't many schools doing it. So the following year, when Notre Dame Stadium, that house that Rockney built, if you will, was dedicated in 1930, well, you guessed it. Our man gave a speech. And uh, much to the surprise of probably nobody, again, that man who had that fighter's jaw but that look of a brooding poet gave one heck of a speech at the field's dedication. And it's really interesting because even early on in Notre Dame history and how it was written, the historiography of Notre Dame football history, if you will, he was called the father of Notre Dame football pretty early on. And, of course, as I mentioned, he has also been known as the father of Mother's Day as well. So how, how about that? But he and his wife, Clarabelle, were well-known across South Bend for their various outreach programs and contributing to philanthropic causes. As a guy who works in private philanthropy, this is where my heart gets beating a little faster. But together, he and Clarabelle opened the Herring House in 1925, which actually served as an African-American cultural and social center. So when you really think about it, in a sense, the facility was kind of part Big Brothers, Big Sisters, part YMCA, part Boys and Girls Club, also a space for concerts, conferences, weddings, or birthdays, all for the African-American population of South Bend. Just incredible. There are so many amazing photographs of the Herring House on the internet. Now, I know I hate to send everyone to the internet looking up the Herring House, but, but it is amazing what this space did for the African-American population of South Bend during this time. And so the facility, which again opened in 1925, actually stayed open until closing in 1963, so nearly four decades. And so you better believe, next time I'm up in South Bend, I will figure out where this place was. If it's still standing, I will take pictures of it, and I'll share them out with you. But I'm sure of it. If you ask folks from South Bend of a certain age about Herring House, they'd certainly be able to recall it. But Frank E. Herring himself died on July 11, 1943, at his home in South Bend. And just kind of along the vein of why this show exists, while his impact 
may have been temporarily, let's say, misplaced by the vast pages of history, there's no better time to learn or remind ourselves of the legacy of Frank E. Herring. And I'll be right back with Show Wrap. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that episode about our new man, our hero of the hour, Frank E. Herring, the father of Notre Dame football and also the father of Mother's Day. And a happy, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Of course, I I look at my wife, who is the wonderful mother of our three children, my mom, who actually somehow birthed 10 of us. Um, the second oldest of 10, as some of you may be aware, and just all the amazing moms out there. This is your day. I really hope you enjoy it. I hope your significant others, your spouses, whomever it might be, your children have something very, very special planned for you. But I do hope you enjoyed this little slice of Notre Dame lore, which very closely ties in to Mother's Day. And as I mentioned, there are some very, very exciting offerings coming down the pike, including a 10-year anniversary special of Manti Teo's 2020-12 season. And again, we're going to kind of discuss in a kind of a light way, I think anyway, some of the kind of odd things that happened that year because we can kind of look back at them now and look at them kind of as they were, which was a little bit strange. But I think there's a lot of insight that people don't really care to read or have kind of glossed over. There was a lot of factors at play for the Manti Teo situation. So... So I'm going to bring in co-contributor Matt Gehring for that one. We're going to tackle it together, and that's really, really exciting. So there is that one. And again, I mentioned the Basilica episode. I've got pretty good designs on it. So I hope that one's also going to be really good. And that may not be one of the more popular ones. You know, hey, uh, no, a football podcast episode about a church. Okay. <laughs> but I think it's very, very appropriate for the work and the charge of this show. So if you enjoy the show, if you like it, if you want to share it, please do share it with anyone you might know. I got to believe that this show, which has listeners in all 50 states and about two dozen countries, a lot of that is word of mouth, aside from the unifying factor of Notre Dame football fandom. So please tell anyone you might know who might be interested in this kind of show about it. And I would greatly, greatly appreciate it as I always do. So a few thank yous again. Thank you to our pals at WCScreens.com. It is because of WCScreens.com that we have a brand new website called OnwardToVictory.blog. Jump over there. Read about me and my family's experience at the recent Blue Gold game. I mean, it was amazing, but I took a lot of pictures, so I put them all up there. Again, the WCScreens.com sponsored venture of onward to victory.blog. So we are so appreciative to have them as a member of the family and in the fold. So, and again, thanks to them. I have a very, very special announcement that I'm going to be making here very soon to celebrate the third anniversary of the show. So stay tuned. We always have exciting things on the horizon at onward to victory. So thank you again to our consensus, all Americans. Again, those who donate to the show, that is Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, 
And of course, yet another pal of mine, the author of The Forever Year about George Gipp and Iris Trapier's real life romance during the last year of Gipper's life. I'm actually about to reread it for the third time, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I love the book. Go check it out. But the man is Will Fuller, and he supports the show every single month. And he is of Warren, Ohio, recently made the trek back to the Midwest. So thank you all very, very much. And of course, thank you to Mr. Joseph Rakish, whose song, Knut Rockney, serves as the show's theme song. So go check it out. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, YouTube. Let's just say, however it is that you'd like to digest your music, you can find Joseph's work and all of his songs, including Knut Rockney, there. So make sure you go support him. But I really appreciate you all once again for tuning in and taking in yet another episode. So I had better sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. (laughs) 